Good morning. And please, up front, forgive me if my voice cracks, if I'm taking a lot of drinks. It'd just be a time for all of us to pause and have a thought. So I'd like to begin this morning telling you a little bit of a story. In January of 2001, I had a fairly unique opportunity uh, with a group from World Vision, I got to go to Sierra Leone in West Africa. And they were just coming out of a decade, longer than a decade, civil war. That had been brutal. If any of you ever saw the movie Blood Diamonds, you have an idea how brutal that civil war was. And World Vision and other organizations were just beginning to come back after years of having had to leave the country. And sitting around with our hosts one night, I said, you know, I've been following this war because our church has a connection, the church I was at had a connection to workers in Sierra Leone. And I said, it seemed like the war ended so suddenly. It had been going on for a decade. And it, what happened? Why all of a sudden did the rebels give up? And they looked at each other kind of knowingly and laughed and said, well, do you remember in May of 2000, did you read that 500 United Nations peacekeepers had been captured by the rebels? Oh yeah, I remember that. Well, and then did you read in July that their release had been negotiated? Yeah. Well, what really happened that never made public news was that one night, British special forces dropped into the rebel camp released all the UN peacekeepers, and they were out again before dawn. And it didn't fare too well for the rebels. A couple hundred lost their lives that night. And that set in motion, it fractured all the different rebel factions, it restored morale in the country, and it began the process that led to the final surrender of the rebels in November 2000. So May, July, November. That was pretty quick. And that story reminded me somewhat of um, it, World War II. We had D-Day in June of 1944 when Allied forces hit the beaches in Normandy. And people would say that turned the tide. That set in motion the final defeat and the final surrender Almost a year later, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, was almost a year after D-Day. And it made me think that, you know, it, sometimes it seems like in this, this world, we're at war. We're in a war sometimes. It seems like our relationships are fractured and our politics are askew and our systems are broken. And what if we knew, what if we could know for certain what the outcome was going to be of this war in this broken world. And brothers and sisters, you know what? In Christ, we do know the outcome. And we just celebrated, in a way, uh, the beginning of the end a few weeks ago when we celebrated Christmas. We celebrated Christ's first coming to this earth. And in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he broke the power of sin and Satan and death. But we await the final 
consummation, the final surrender. We await that for his second coming. So how do we live now in the time between knowing the tide is turned but not yet seeing the completion? How do we live now? Well, I'd suggest that we live the way Jesus lived um, and look to his life for an example. And before we even look at Jesus, I want to take us back to a passage that influenced him so greatly, and that is in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. In this passage, we read about a person identified as the servant of the Lord, very often um, understood to be Jesus. And the verses go like this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And I'll stop there and do a little bit of explanation. Well, I've described who the servant is. He claims to be anointed, Messiah, Christ, and the languages go from one word to the next. And he said he has been sent by the sovereign Lord, the Lord of Exodus, release and liberation, the God of Joshua, a God of victory and overcoming. And the Jews might have been expecting a military or political victory to restore their country, but this servant describes a different kind of salvation. He talks about good news to the poor, the outcasts, the disadvantaged, the losers of this world. And he talks about binding up wounds. That's a very hands-on physical process. That's getting dirty when you bind up the brokenhearted, the prisoners, the captives, and we see here this salvation, this promise of victory that this Messiah, this servant is bringing, is, is one of release and freedom and a salvation of all manner of evils um, in our minds, in our hearts, in our systems, in our relationships. All of that is to be healed and saved. And he talks about the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance. Now the reference, uh, the other Dr. Blomberg explained to me after first service. <clears throat> You'll get it later. The year of favor would remind the Jews of a year of jubilee when debts were released and prisoners were free and slaves were set free. But what got me the first time I read it was not so much a, a literal idea of a year versus a, and a day of vengeance, but the contrast in time. Our Lord can enact judgment in a heartbeat. I mean, we even joke about it sometimes, you know, psst, one zap and God's got you. But the year of his favor is so much more prolonged. It's, a, it's so much more of a lifetime, generations, it's... It's such a contrast to the day of his vengeance. 
His heartbeat for eternity, really, is for salvation and redemption. And interestingly, this is the passage, this is the type of Savior that Jesus picks up on, and in his first public address, really, back in his hometown of Nazareth, first time speaking and getting recorded in public, he was invited in the synagogue to pick up a scroll and read, and he chose this passage from Isaiah. Now, let's look at it. It's, It's pretty much the same. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. This is Jesus, hometown boy. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, that's a little bit um, bold, shall we say, Jesus? And what we see is um, there is a great deal of similarity between the Isaiah passage and Jesus' using it for himself. Now the rabbis would kind of read and interpret, read and interpret, not unlike what I just did or I'm doing right here. So we see how similar the passages are, but wait a minute, could you go back one slide, please? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, go back to the Isaiah passage, please. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of the God, of our God. Wait, go Okay, so back to Luke. <laughs> to proclaim... Oh my gosh, did I forget something? Or did Luke forget something? Or was Jesus just playing fast with the text here? Oh no. Now there's no mistake, folks. In his first coming, Jesus was not here to judge at that time. He was not here during his first coming to enact the day of God's vengeance. He was here to demonstrate and to live the year of our Lord's favor. And what a a beautiful idea, beautiful picture. It's a time of grace in which all people can respond to the invitation of Christ for salvation. One author calls it the season of God's hospitality, a welcome and inclusion, a time of mercy and rest, as Carl talked about with hospitality, and and Nikki talked about with hospitality recently. It's a time when evil is countered. It's a time of ongoing salvation. We often think of the death of Jesus as winning our salvation, but the life of Jesus demonstrates the ongoing nature of salvation and redemption the time between his first and second coming. The tide has turned, but it's not completed yet. That will be his second coming. So now how do we live in the middle? Well, Jesus talked about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and in other places, he as easily talked about proclaiming the kingdom. 
The kingdom is here. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is among us. And so let's look at the kingdom of God next. Because I think sometimes we mistakenly think that the kingdom of God is out there somewhere and it hasn't come here yet. Because maybe like the Jews, we're waiting for the political and the military victory that's going to vanquish all the evils. No, the, the kingdom of God refers to his full rule and reign over all creation. So that doesn't have a starting point or a stopping point. We don't have to vote it in. We don't have to make the kingdom come. The kingdom is here because God rules and reigns over all creation. We still got some battles going on. The, you know, <laughs> battles. The, the tide is turned. I mean, we know the victory is coming. We still live in a time of, we don't see the kingdom completed yet. So how do we live now? Well, as much as it's God's rule and reign, we found all these great words to describe this. This is a time of redeeming, renewing, restoring, reconciling, rescuing, recreating. And Valerie, if you want, you can just point to the slide. <laughs> and it's not that they all just start with R's. It's that they're all active verbs. This is what God is doing now. We get discouraged sometimes and we think, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But God is constantly renewing, restoring, redeeming. It's as if it's a palpable heartbeat. I almost think sometimes if you stopped and listened, you could hear it. Renewing, redeeming, restoring, recreating, restoring, rescuing, redeeming. Because you see, when God created this world, it wasn't a mistake. He didn't look at it and say, my bad. He loves this world that he created. You know, we have this consumer mentality that says, if it's old, if it's broken, if it's not working right, throw it out. And I think sometimes we think that is God's attitude toward his creation. But no, he made it good. And he will restore and redeem he will fix what is broken. He will make his creation work well again. If I have an antique that's missing a part or is dirty, I don't throw it out. I restore it. I know it has value. And that is what God will do with this creation. It's not a lost cause. It's not a waste. It was not a mistake. The beautiful thing is that as much as this is God's ultimate purpose to renew and redeem all that he created, we get to be a part of it with him as followers of Jesus. Jesus never intended that we would get saved and then sit on a shelf or a bench waiting for the rapture so we can get out of this world. No. We were saved from our sins in order to be part of this kingdom of God. 
in order to live our lives and breathe and sink with him, with his heartbeat. We get to be examples and stewards of redemption. We get to be an example of it individually and as a church. One of the analogies I really love, I picked up on many, many um, mission trips to Guatemala, and that is the concept of a demonstration plot. The idea is you, you take a piece of land and you set it aside and you're wondering what its potential is. What can I get to grow on this? So you lavish care on it, you amend the soil, you mitigate any extreme weather conditions with windbreaks or sunscreens or shade, you add nutrients, and, and your goal is to find out in this demonstration plot, what is the potential? What could we do? And we as a church are a demonstration plot of the kingdom. In our relationships, in our life together, in our being as children of God in community in the church, we demonstrate the potential to counter the evils of this world and to show an ongoing redemption to those of outside. In our relationships, where we get along as a diverse, diverse group of people, I mean, if you look around, you realize if you didn't know certain people here, you probably wouldn't know them because you're so dang different. Maybe even politically you disagree. And we, we show the world a different set of politics in the way we use power. We use power for good in advocacy to help other people. We show the world a different set of economics because we show a generosity and a self-giving ability that goes against the world's idea of there's got to be something in it for me. We are a demonstration of what the kingdom can do by the very being, being the church, being the children of God in community. In this way, we show that the tide has turned and that the victory is assured and the victories are happening now. But you know, the... Um, the early Corinthians, they didn't, they didn't get this alternative life too well. If you know the stories of Corinth, uh, they had all manner of sin still going on. They, they, they just didn't come to maturity very fast. So Paul did a lot of teaching in his letters to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives them a long discourse on the resurrection, hoping that they will grasp the, the infinite power and, and, and have an awe at what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. And summarizing the first 57 verses, Christ died, Christ rose, you will be raised, you will have new bodies. And then you would expect him to end the chapter by saying, look guys, so just, just sit here, try to behave, and wait it out. <laughs> like you'd say to your children, right? Just sit here, behave, just wait. 
But that's not what he says. He concludes this glorious chapter on the resurrection by saying, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Get out there. Be involved. Oh my gosh, you Corinthians, you mess it up so much. And when I send you out there, you're as likely to throw punches as you are to bring someone to Christ. But get out there. Be involved. We are not saved. We are not redeemed. We are not as part of God's kingdom meant to just sit and wait for heaven someday. Get out there and get dirty. I think of a surgeon before surgery, he scrubs, he puts on a hat, he puts on a mask, he puts on a gown, and it's not so that he can go back to the break room and sit there and feel good about how clean and pure he is now. Check the fingernails, 20 seconds, two minutes maybe. The surgeon goes through this process of becoming clean in order to get out there and get his hands into the guts and the blood and the infection and bring healing. I think you know, we are saved in Christ, covered in Christ, clothed with Christ, gifted with the Spirit. We are beautifully renewed in God's eyes, but not so that we can just sit back and say, I am beautifully renewed now. Don't get me dirty. No, it's so that we can get out in the world and get in the blood and the guts and the infection, but with no fear that we will be contaminated because we are protected. We are protected by Christ. We are protected by the mind of Christ, the spirit within us. We don't have to worry about the world infecting us. We can be free to heal in the world. When we are aligned with God's character and his promises, when we're imitating the mindset and the works of Jesus, when we are empowered by the Spirit, this good lasts. These deeds have value. It's not laboring in vain. There's something, it's as if we have in our little deeds of mercy and compassion, we have the DNA of God's ultimate purposes and abilities of mercy and compassion. There is something in the good we do that has eternal value. So we're not just a bunch of social activists with impulsive, compassion or a sense of duty. They told me to go up there and help the Ascent Community Church. I better go do it. And we're not just social activists in terms of, you know, I'm going to use my power to get out there and I'm going to change the power structure so that I have the power. No, that's, that's not it. We are not social activists. We are people of the resurrection with a resurrection power. Paul reminded us of this so well in Ephesians 1. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And here comes the good part. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Whoa. I, I mean, I know I've got spiritual gifts. That's good. I know, I know I've got scripture to guide me. That's good. But when you tell me that God has gifted me with the same power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, that takes it up a notch. That gives me a sense of purpose and worth and value that no degree of social activism will ever instill in me. That gives me a sense of continuity with the heart of God in the way no human cause in and of itself will ever motivate or sustain me. With the spirit of God within us, with the power of the resurrection in us, it simply changes my mindset and my motivation. The author N.T. Wright put it this way, in a way I really appreciate in the next slide. People who believe in the resurrection in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. God is not going to just throw the world away and say, that was a mistake, that one didn't work out. He is renewing, restoring, reconciling, redeeming, and that's what we get to be a part of. And yeah, there's some of you out there who are thinking, oh, um, what do you want me to do? What do you all want to do? Well, I've, I've been trying to lay a foundation so that whatever you do, you realize the power that comes and the motivation and the sustenance that comes with knowing you're in with the heartbeat of God, that his rule and reign is over all creation, that in the year of the Lord's favor, he is all about redeeming. And any act we do that coincides with his heartbeat and his will and his character is a little act of redemption, the DNA of his ultimate redemption. So every act of self-giving love, every teaching, mentoring, caring for another, creating beauty through the arts, through music, through dance, creating atmospheres of safety and welcome, as Nikki and Carl talked about the last few weeks, where people can come in and learn about his good and perfect redemption. Listening can be an act of redeeming someone. Empathy, understanding. Any small act of concern for the environment, his created world that he loves. Recycling, plant a tree, 
Or my pet peeve, folks, if you're on the trail, would you pick up your bags of dog poo? Honestly, it's an act of redemption. It's good for, the, it's good for creation. Why do people leave those bags there? Never mind. Pet peeve. On a, on a community scale, when you're involved in your neighborhood and your community, and you're there as that witness, as that demonstration plot of what an alternative lifestyle is realistically available through the grace of God. When we show appreciation for public workers, I talked about being in church community with diverse folks, the sacrificial nature of self-giving love, ramp it up again on a national, international scale. Sure, efforts at equity, equality, combating injustices, working for justice proactively, any forms of participation of many, many types. Some of us write letters, some of us join protests. Some of us pray, some of us advocate. All these, I don't have to tell you what to do because you have the maturity to know and to follow the heartbeat of God. But it can be so discouraging when it goes wrong, when it gets hard. And yet it's so encouraging when the motivation comes from realizing that God is always about redeeming, redeeming. We live in the time of his favor, of his hospitality and grace, where people are welcomed and evil is countered. We do that. Much more motivating than impulsive compassion or political action or cynical complaining. God has turned the tide. And we live now with the ability to be part of that heartbeat. So Carl always ends his sermons with your move. And again, you're probably thinking, but you haven't told me what to do. What are you interested in? What are you gifted in? Continue the good works you're doing, church. I, the number of people involved in ministries, and not necessarily a church-centered ministry, but a life-giving, redemptive ministry to neighbors, fellow students, co-workers. First thing to do is think. Oh, really? Yeah. Think about the scope of salvation. It's not just save me from my sins and put me on a shelf until I get to heaven by and by. It's the surgeon scrubbed and pure, ready to get into the muck and the mire and the dirt and the infection to bring healing, to bring part of that redemption to whatever sphere we have. Think about the scope of God's intended salvation. Think about the scope of his kingdom. It's not out there, coming someday, it's here. It is his entire rule and reign, whether it's recognized or not. He is in charge. He has won. My grandson preached the best sermon on Revelation we ever heard. He said, he's about four, and he said, I'm going to be the preacher. One day, and then he got nervous, he said, the end. Yep, that's the book of Revelation. <laughs> One day, the end. But until then, 
Take what God has given you. You know, the world might not think it's totally significant, but in God's eyes, you can use it for redemption. I don't care if you're cleaning the kitchen, crocheting a blanket, signing a petition, helping a church empty its smoke-filled building. But for when you think of it in terms of coinciding with God's heartbeat for redemption, it, it changes your motivation and encourages you so much to the task. The tide has turned. The victory is sure. While we're waiting, let's live with the heartbeat of God. Father, I pray that this hasn't been so ethereal that it's been lost. We are grateful to be in your beautiful creation and we mourn its fallen state. We lament the times when we have not lived up to our ability. And we pray your goodness and mercy to continue. Give us eyes to see the opportunities for involvement. Give us the heart, give us hearts that beat with yours. Amen.